Welcome to Slimehouse, a podcast defining a genre of crude humor, outrageous hijinks, and mild language. A short while back, we heard about a new documentary coming out called The Orange Years, The Nickelodeon Story, and we knew we'd have to cover it on this show. Today, we're interviewing documentary directors Scott Barber and Adam Sweeney about their inspiration and process for making a definitive history of how Nick became what we know it to be and the shows and creators that brought it there. It's a great conversation with remarkable insight. After listening, be sure to check out The Orange Years, which is now available on VOD on all major platforms for a comprehensive look down a slime-filled memory lane. Enjoy. So we wanted to get a little bit more on so the genesis of this project. Um, did y'all watch a lot of Nickelodeon or Pinwheel when you were younger? And if so, what properties really spoke to you the most and were you most excited to cover? So yeah, we grew up definitely watching Nickelodeon. Uh, Scott and I have known each other since fourth grade. We um, became best friends whenever we were in sixth grade and we watched Nickelodeon. We, yeah, we were aware of Pinwheel. You can't do it on television. Uh, the entire lineup we, we watched. Um, and so in addition to that, it, you know, the, the project kind of became a genesis and started really from the times like we both came, grew up in broken homes. Uh, and when I moved away, we stayed friends by watching SNCC and watching all these shows together. And we'd be on the phone all the time calling each other. And so with respect to the shows that we love and the ones that we were most excited about, uh, you know, I, I think you can name any of them, honestly. Like I, I know for, I, I was excited about Are You Afraid of the Dark, uh, the, the, you know, The Adventures of Pete and Pete, um, Clarissa Explains It All, uh, Double Dare, um, The Secret World of Alex Mack. I mean, you could just go on and on, right? And that's the beauty of Nickelodeon is that you have, uh, you could do a top 100 and probably realistically, like in terms of shows and probably like number 100 would be just as good as number one, right? You could just, uh, you know, inter, inter, uh, change them or interweave them. Uh, so yeah, so the, that was kind of my experience of, of it. And uh, we kind of say that it was a documentary that has been a childhood in the making. Nice. Um, going into getting started on the project itself, I imagine once you were underway, you had a lot of material to rewatch in preparation for the documentary specifically. So, and probably stuff that maybe was before your time or that just wasn't something you'd watched. So just tell us about your process of archival watching and figuring out how to get that into the final cut. We had to watch a lot of shows and, you know, Adam and I are kind of eighties and nineties kids. Uh, so luckily we kind of straddled this whole time period that we were uh, covering, but there was definitely some time before, like one thing that they referred to as the green vegetables years, which was before the orange logo became a thing. Um, and when the, the network was just known as pinwheel, we didn't, we didn't know about that, you know, Neither of our families had cable back then. Mm -hmm. uh, and then there were some of the, the later shows uh, Adam and I were kind of aging out of by then. So kind of at the, 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 the era that we're covering, which is really Geraldine Laybourne's tenure at Nickelodeon, some of the early stuff before she came on and the later stuff, we had to do some research. And that was fun too, because 
you know, we had passion for all these shows, but it was cool to learn about new things that that we didn't really have a like nostalgia button for, you know, it was, we were just getting to be journalists and learn about something new. Yeah. And there was definitely, there was footage that we talked about whenever we were looking back uh, at cube and pinwheel that whenever we were like kind of archiving it, that uh, we were just blown away by, you know, there's a cut, there's one scene in it uh, where Scott and I just couldn't stop just cracking up at the idea I mean it was like it was kind of like some of the stuff that they did was really cool because it was like interactive television you know which happens now realistically on Netflix you know I think there was what the it was a the was it um the dark mirror episode where it was like a choose your own adventure kind of right and so even whenever the things weren't working for them they were still cutting edge and and had great ideas people were just weren't, weren't ready for it yet so uh, yeah, the archival footage there was uh, there was so much of it in the way that you know we went about getting it. You know, credit to the team and credit to Scott. Like, was any way possible? You know, like he is going to YouTube, going to hit people up in their DMs, like that were just big fans, and we asked, you know, like, do you have footage? Do you have like, did you go to Nickelodeon? Uh, we you know put a call out, like, did you guys ever go to Universal Studios? Did you go do this and this? If so. Do you have any type of footage whatsoever? Uh, Vulcan Video in Austin helped us out a ton because they had a bunch of DVDs and other things that didn't, you know, that just weren't weren't available at large. And then also, you know, sometimes you have to go to eBay or go on Amazon and buy. Like we had to go and, you know, I think it was uh, we had to buy the the Magic Johnson Nick News special. Uh, that is something that just isn't readily available either. So. You know, it was like whatever it took. We, you know, it was a, it was a matter of hunting it down, and so it was it was educational. The entire thing was educational for us the entire time. Yeah, I work often as an assistant editor, and I I love archival projects for that reason. So I can see how it just yeah that process is great. So <laughs> yeah, is is there anything specifically that? Um, and if you can't speak to this, all good. Is there anything specifically that? um you were one really excited to find that may have been kind of lost or and then two things that you know you maybe couldn't find or had to leave on the cutting room floor that um don't necessarily appear in the documentary yeah i think so i i think that there is uh you know we talk without going too much into it but we do talk about nick news and how important it was at the time and Nickelodeon still does it they still do you know like the kids pick your president and they do other other items like that and I was reading the other day that I think the Nickelodeon kids pick your president uh website got hacked somehow and it's like I don't know if people understand that but those votes don't count so <laughs> whoever was doing that you know try, I mean good try but, uh, but so uh, at least the kids are getting kind of a real idea into what happens in terms of political interference, I guess. But uh, so, yes. Yeah, so the Nick News section, I thought, was very um, I, I think that it's an example that this film hopefully is not empty calories and that it has uh, a true you know, spirit and a true heart. Uh, a couple of things, and, and Scott and I have talked about it a little bit, you know, Scott brought this up a couple uh, days ago that I, that I kind of, kind of forgot about is, you know, we did have, we did have a section on Nick at Night that was really cool. And that, 
we wish that we would have talked about that also. Scott can speak about that a little bit more, but it speaks to the ability both as like really smart marketers, but also the intelligence of Nickelodeon that they realize that, you know, the reality is, is that parents were kids too once. Yeah, there was a whole beginning section um, that I didn't know about that I had to learn about where um, there was this old <laughs> technology called Cube that uh, Nickelodeon started as a channel um, on that. And I was fascinated by that um, just because I didn't even know that was a thing. It was only available in Columbus, Ohio. And for any fans of kind of quirky 80s, 70s and 80s technology, uh, I think they'll really get a kick out of that part. Uh, I think we could have made a whole documentary just on Cube. I don't know who would watch it, but it was so cool. And the, the people, uh, we reached out to some of the people that worked on Cube and they helped, they gave us so much archival footage. So that helped out so much. So we were able to really make this fun little chapter because we had all this archival footage to help support the interviews. Yeah, those early sections were really fascinating to me. And it's cool that you bring up the kind of 70s, 80s gadgetry because... Um, especially the pinwheel kind of animation. It was like puppetry, but it had this kind of painted oil painted style that, yeah. you know, immediately brought me back. Um, and, you know, I wish, you know, great animation is still out there and, and if you seek it out, but um, just that kind of innovative, you know, eye, I feel like is, yeah. is missing a lot nowadays. Yeah, I think that there's a lot of, as, as good as the animation is on, you know, Nickelodeon and also other, you know, just major networks. A lot of it really is. I mean, the truth is, is that a lot of entertainment is a copycat industry, right? And you, it doesn't always pay, sometimes it does, but to take risks, you know, and I think at that point in time, people hadn't figured it out. And so people, it's like when you kind of go back and you look at like the Wright brothers and all of like the way that people were trying to create planes, you know, you're just like, that is just, how would that even possibly work, right? But some of them are fascinating. And, and some of them, you know, like, you think look cooler in some ways than what actually ended up being the trend, you know? So, yeah, so I understand what you're saying. So one thing we want to talk about is the decline of the children's game show, which is depicted in your movie. Well, not the decline, but the um, you know, rise of it with Nick Arcade, Double Dare, Legends of the Hidden Temple. That doesn't really exist anymore, um, despite the recent revival and popularity of primetime game shows, such as Family Feud. Do, do you think about that or why that might hap have happened, so, you know, with like the advent of YouTube, perhaps? I mean, I, I can only speak from what I, what I think is going on. And I think that there's just less of an emphasis on having knowledge in your brain. It's not as impressive uh, as it used to be, because, you know, if you're sitting around back in the 80s and you're talking about a subject and you don't know, you can't really insert yourself in the conversation. If it's like, who is the actor that starred in that? If there's one person in your group that can be like, oh, that was actually this person, that was impressive. Whereas now we're not impressed by that because we can all just look it up on our phones and find out who it is. So I really feel like kids these days, and again, this is, <laughs> this is purely anecdotal, purely my theory is that um, it's just because kids aren't impressed with that anymore because knowing things is something that they have at their fingertips. Because yeah, I mean, they revived Double Dare and it was, it was just like the old Double Dare, even better. It was awesome. But for some reason, you know, it, it only lasted a couple of seasons. It came and went. So that, that's my best guess, personally. I think also that there, we're, we kind of exist in an era where um, competition is 
a little bit frowned upon uh, amongst children, you know, like, I mean, and, you know, like there are, I, I remember doing an article when I was in college or writing an article um, about like the psychology of everybody getting awards, you know, and, uh, and, and I think that that kind of to a degree is, you know, where we're, where we're at realistically. I, I think that uh, it's, it, I mean, everybody is, is special in their own way. Right. But the fact is there are winners and then there are, there are losers. That's just how it is. Right. And the thing, and, and I wish that we could go back to, I mean, they did do, they did do another double dare. Right. But I know what you're talking about, like with respect to, I would love to see like a Nick arcade type, like esports uh, competition. Uh, that'd be a lot of fun. Right. I mean, because that is something worldwide that people can connect to. It also seems like you would have tons of gamers and tons of, uh, gaming companies that would be interested in that. I mean, uh, so, uh, that's, I mean, I, I can't speak on it, but I mean, I think that, uh, you know, I agree with what Scott said also is that, uh, is that knowledge, unless you're doing like geeks who, geeks who drink, right or something like that like pub pub quizzes which were from that generation you're encouraged to know that whereas uh now i think it's more you're encouraged to share your personality right like everybody it's about kind of feeding your ego a little bit you know like i've talked to a couple people that i work with they're like i'm an influencer and it's like okay well i mean i guess technically everybody can say that they're an influencer and some are don't get me wrong like there are a lot of people that are very good at what they do but it's almost become kind of like uh it, it's just kind of you know it, it doesn't mean anything anymore really right like uh anybody can say that and so i i wish that you know that we would place a place an emphasis on being more active on being more knowledgeable because those are things that'll serve that, that will serve you well. Right. And it also just makes you, you know, there's a reason we go to college is that it makes you just a more culture cultured and more empathetic and understanding human being, you know? So uh, I, I think it's cool that y'all, that, that y'all picked up about that and that y'all talk about it. Right. Because it is, it's, it's a gap right now uh, that exists in children's programming. Like, you know, remember like where in the world is Carmen San Diego? Mm -hmm. Like all time man, favorite. That one was awesome like scott and i used to always always joke around and always say like hit it rockapella like it was <laughs> yeah. like why was there a band like why was rockapella there just hanging out but but you know it it's so you, good it, <laughs> what'd you say i said so good rockapella i thought you so said good i thought you said because they could and i was like <laughs> because they could right yeah right. that's true they could they could and they did <laughs> but yeah you know those types of games i loved watching them and nickelodeon was synonymous with them you know they had them all the time so yeah well it's funny because that's i mean one of the reasons the three of us became good friends is because we all in a lot of ways are trivia and movie history and sort of have a lot of data and interest in that that just i think that's one of the ways we all kind of connected and found common ground and but i agree that, that in the kind of iphone era that's a lost kind of needed thing because you have it immediately there um and even just film history and kind of yeah film history i feel like is also a lost form because you have you can't keep up with what's current now that you know why would you go back and watch the others and that makes me realize we haven't asked how did this project for like 
jumping to the beginning of the filmmaking, like what's the inception of, of this film and how did you both just say, reach a point where you could do it and say, yep, let's, let's go make it. Adam and I had been a screenwriting duo before this. We had written scripts and um, just kind of go about starting a film career that way. And it was, uh, you know, it was fun. It was rewarding, but we really wanted to make a film where we could be involved in all aspects of the filmmaking. So we could make sure it was completed and also that it was completed in the way that we wanted to, you know, we really wanted to be involved in it all the way through. So we thought maybe a documentary, <laughs> you know, that felt yeah. like something that was accessible to us. And uh, around the same time um, in our, our professional day job career, <laughs> we were kind of working on these documentaries for big companies and so we kind of said, you know, we're, we're kind of making documentaries already. We know how to do it. We know how to frame up an interview. We know how to edit. And we, most importantly, from our days writing scripts, we know how to tell a story. Mm -hmm. So we can do it. We can do a documentary. I remember us saying it. We can do this. And so uh, we just started thinking, okay, well, if we do a documentary, what do we do a documentary about? And we had maybe three or four ideas. We were kicking around. We were kind of waiting for one to kind of appear as the standout and you know Nickelodeon was one that we kept kind of bouncing around Nickelodeon and then we said well what would that look like a Nickelodeon documentary how could you tell a story how could you what's your through line how could you make it concise and not just be nostalgia not just be a walk down memory lane and it was once we started doing some research and we found out about the work of the great Jerry Laybourne who um, for those that don't know was the president all throughout the 80s and 90s and all the way from early shows like you can't do that on television all the way to shows like all that and Keenan Kel she was responsible for that all of that that's insane and once we found out about her and her team of just crazy groundbreaking people uh that's when we knew there was an actually a there was actually a story there and that's when we really beyond the nostalgia when we found out about her that's when we got really passionate about it and said okay yeah this is a story that, that needs to be made, that people need to hear about. And that's when we got excited. And that's kind of when The Orange Years was born. Awesome. Yeah, one of my kind of big epiphanies from this movie, and I guess kind of one of the larger epiphanies we've had as we've been doing this podcast, looking back at a lot of these 80s, 90s, kind of thousands, um, family-oriented movies, is that um, a lot of these movies are really successful because... Um, they didn't talk down to kids. They spoke with kids. You know, they weren't condescending. Um, it felt like they were written by, you know, younger people, even though they were written by older folks. So kind of how did that influence the storytelling of your guys' documentary? How did you guys kind of mold your tone in that spirit of, of being fun and youthful, but also, as you just mentioned, you know, being knowledgeable? You know, I think... That's a, that's a great question. And I think that we always, I, one, one thing that I, I think is important for those types of films and those types of stories from the eighties to the, you know, to now, but definitely eighties, nineties and two thousands is that they have a level of respect for the story and for all the characters. Right. So I think about a movie like ET and that movie is all about empathizing with what Elliot is going through. You know, even the parents, they 
talk to him, even the even the guy who's the bad guy, right? Who's like the government, you know, like kind of scientist guy talks to him, right? And he's very kind to him. So I think that what we wanted to do was emulate that level of respect uh, and also make sure just like Nickelodeon did that whenever you, there was just an energy there, right? And so you want to match that uh, in, in the score. You want to match that from the very beginning, right? Like the way that it was edited, you know, and, the, and a lot of credit goes, goes to, to Scott and Sean and uh, Brad, uh, the, you know, the, the key editors for that is that we wanted to make sure that from the beginning that you jump in and that we're going at a little bit of a fast pace, right? So that that can get you back into that, that mindset right? Of like, this is what Nickelodeon was. Like, it was like fast and it was upbeat and it was this and this, right? But then we also wanted to make sure that we had one person behind the camera, one person in front of the camera. Uh, Scott talks about this a lot about, so that we had somebody that you knew, that you loved, that you could connect with, but then you also had the adult who was there as well, right? Who was telling the story. And I, I think that that always kind of gave us a, you know, the fact that we felt a, a responsibility to, and, and let's be realistic, pressure to do this the right way. I think that that helped us. And furthermore, you know, we had hundreds of different programs that while all very different, all had that same spirit, right? So we could kind of emulate that, right? And hopefully it's a little bit different. I'll do respect to The Force Awakens, right? But like The Force Awakens tonally, knows what it needed to do right like jj abrams and lawrence kasdan knew what they needed to do because they had the blueprint right there right so that helped out i think that helped us out a lot in terms of having a little bit of a, of a north star of how we needed to focus on tone i think for me too it was like once once uh because i kind of come from like a rock and roll kind of background and it was like once we found out like the diy spirit and the kind of like F you attitude of Nickelodeon. It was so punk rock that it was like, oh yeah, this is kind of, this can kind of have this punk energy. That's when it was like, okay, yeah, that, that made it uh, a lot more, uh, it just kind of made the whole thing kind of made sense all at once. So we tried to do that, keep that, keep that energy up and, and emulate that energy. So yeah, it was a, it was a, it was a blast to get to edit this thing. I like that um, comparison to kind of punk rock. I, I kind of had that same thought myself, you know, this just kind of like amp childlike anarchy um but also it, one of the things that really spoke to me was the the section on clever Slay explains it all um, which i really liked as a kid um but i didn't really process how progressive it was for the time um so something for me was just kind of as i was watching reflecting back on like oh well, like what lessons that i may have you know unknowingly unconsciously learned from nickelodeon um so i'm wondering if there's any kind of things that in revisiting a lot of these shows, maybe you kind of reflected on as, oh, wow, this is a very formative lesson that I learned from this. Well, I think some of it too is what you just said. They, it shows their understanding of kids in that they were teaching you a lesson and you didn't even know it. <laughs> you know, like it was so progressive, but you weren't, you weren't watching the show going, wow, this is so progressive. I mean, granted, you're a kid, so you probably <laughs> wouldn't think like that anyway, but um, uh, you know, they had all these groundbreaking shows and you weren't, it never felt like they were preaching to you or they were, they were talking to you like, Hey kids, it's time to learn a lesson. 
you know, but Clarissa explains it all was definitely a progressive show and it definitely opened up uh, a different world for, you know, we hadn't seen girls and females portrayed like that up until that point, you know, they were always portrayed in kind of a pedantic kind of manner and they weren't. So yeah, I mean, there were a lot of shows that looking back, I was like, oh wow, this was really teaching you to have empathy. A lot of the bullies on Nickelodeon shows, you, you would learn why they were bullies. They weren't just yeah. bullies because they were a one note antagonist. You know, Bobby Budnick on Salute Your Shorts. There's a whole episode where you find out why he is the way that he is. And funny enough, Danny Cooksey also played Stoop Kid on Hey Arnold. And oh, you find out about funny. him. Isn't that funny? Yeah. I did so, not I mean, know that. <laughs> I, think, I think that I learned a lot of lessons. And I think the beauty of Nickelodeon was that I didn't learn, know that I was learning him. And that shows you how well they knew how to talk to kids and how much they understood kids that they could actually speak to them in their language. Yeah, I think you don't have to have a shirt that says the force is female all the time. I, I mean, I think that like it's it's okay to I mean, and absolutely right. Like like represent gender gender racial representation matter, right? They they matter now more than ever. But there's a difference between using those uh, topics for exploitative purposes to make money. And then just to actually do it, right? And to stand for it. And, you know, I, I remember learning lessons. And in hindsight, I was thinking about this, you know, these last couple of weeks since Halloween is, you know, The Adventures of Pete and Pete, there's an episode, uh, the Halloween-y episode. And they, it's, it's all about little Pete wants to break the record for most houses trick-or-treated at right? The, the neighborhood record, or I think the world record. And his brother, older brother is growing up and he's to the point where he wants to do it, but he's afraid of being picked on by his friend, by, or not his friends, but by peers and bullies, right? So they're always like, hey, listen, you don't want to be a Halloweeny, do you? And, you know, they bully him and they'll beat him up. And, and so at that time, I was, I mean, almost realistically coming into that era, era like era and my brother was six years younger than me and so I forgot that I had like an actual moment where I went trick-or-treating with him and I think that I was probably inspired by the fact that the lesson of that is that you need to support your family and you need to care about other people's dreams more than your dreams sometimes right and and uh, those things are just built in and, you know, it's not like as much as I love South Park and, uh, you know, so many people love South Park, there was no lesson of the day, right? It was just like, like Scott said, it was baked in, you know, and, and they found a way to do it in a very poignant manner that didn't feel like it was hitting you over the head with the message. That actually kind of gets into what I was going to ask. Um, my introduction to Nickelodeon was some of the cartoons they came out with in the mid to late nineties, such as Cat, Dog, and Hey Arnold. So um, I, I kind of wanted to know what you guys thought about Nick's relationship to other TV channels at the time. I mean, I think in the doc, you talk a lot about how like they're kind of the anti-Disney, but I was thinking more about um, two other channels in particular. One of which is, I think you guys talked about a little bit, but MTV. And I always thought growing up that MTV and Nickelodeon were kind of, I mean, partially because they both made their like movie tie-ins with Paramount, but like they were kind of like 
they kind of were like a little and older brother to each other in terms of the content they were making because there were also cartoons on MTV like Beavis and Butthead but then also um, Cartoon Network because I would I would watch shows on Cartoon Network that felt like they had a Nickelodeon energy to it Ed, Ed and Eddie in particular so I was wondering if like you guys think about um, what sets Nickelodeon apart or kind of like that well I, and so Scott, do you want me to talk about MTV real quick and then you can talk about Cartoon Network? Or do yeah, you yeah, to... yeah. No, go ahead. Yeah, that's a good one. Okay. So, so yeah, so, so Viacom owns MTV and Nickelodeon. Yeah. And so uh, some of the, like, for example, like Fred Seibert and uh, uh, Alan Goodman, they created the MTV logos and a lot of the MTV bumpers, and they ended up coming to Nickelodeon and working on a lot of the branding. So it makes total sense that they would, you know, feel like spiritual siblings to a degree. Yeah. Uh, I, and, and, you know, Ren and Stimpy was on both channels, which mm. says a lot about Ren and Stimpy, <laughs> like the, mm. how, you know, how, how like really naughty and irreverent it was. But I think that that's, that's a really fair, fair comparison, you know, and, and I think that it was almost like if you once you graduated from Nickelodeon, you moved on to MTV. <laughs> yeah, right. Mm. It was like you were going to like, um, pop culture college basically yes uh yeah so so yeah i i think that that's definitely a fair comparison i think that it's awesome like that you would pick up on it yeah as far as cartoon network goes i think that they have a, a really great relationship i think both made a bunch of really awesome cartoons and still do uh i think that uh you know nickelodeon opened the door for cartoon network you know before nickelodeon cartoons were only saturday mornings and that's it, you know, and Nickelodeon was the one that said, we're going to make uh, kids programming, not just Saturday mornings, but all the time. <laughs> and then Cartoon Network took it a step further and said, we're going to make cartoon cartoons all the time. And those those first three Nicktoons, I mean, they were so incredibly revolutionary, you know, and I, I didn't really know that growing up. I kind of took it for granted. But, you know, before that, cartoons were just commercials for toys. And there was a lot of great um, cartoons that happened, you know, back in the early days of Looney Tunes. And then it got really stale for a long time. And Nickelodeon brought that back with Doug, Rugrats, and Ren and Stimpy. That's the whole idea of it being creator-run, creator-driven, story-driven, and not merchandise-driven. Uh, you know, it's a lot easier to watch an episode of Doug than it is to watch an episode of, like, Transformers. As much as I love Transformers when I was a little kid. So I think that a, a lot of the stuff that happened on Cartoon Network, it was fantastic, but I think it owes everything to Vanessa Coffey, who was the pioneer of those first three Nicktoons. So I think that's almost maybe like a, like a, like a parent and sibling relationship between Nickelodeon and, uh, and Cartoon Network. Right on. My next question is about tropes, because that's something we talk a lot about in our show is the things that come back. And I particularly... I think one of my very favorite moments of the doc is when uh, you're talking about uh, Hey Dude and you say, oh, when we when in doubt, we just threw him in the trough and they show like four or five clips <laughs> of that gag. And I love that because I think those are the kind of things that you don't see when you're only watching an isolated show or episode. But when you watch a whole bunch, you start to see all these familiarities. And so I wanted to just kind of ask you in general about tropes that you uncovered and tropes you like or you're familiar with, et cetera. There was one trope that, that I didn't notice as a kid, but I, uh, I noticed when I was editing the doc. And that is that on 
a common theme on all of these Nickelodeon shows is that the kids are really smart and the adults are absolute idiots. They're buffoons, you know, and that started with you can't do that on television. But then you think salute your shorts. Camp counselor Ugg Lee was an idiot uh, on, on Hey Dude, uh, Mr. Ernst. He was lovable, but he was kind of a buffoon because that's how kids feel. Kids feel when kids look at adults, they just think they're so dumb. <laughs> and uh, I think that's a common theme, even on the shows that Nickelodeon bought, because, you know, Nickelodeon had to purchase the rights to shows in the early days. They weren't before they were making their own programming, you know, shows like Inspector Gadget. You know, Penny was really smart and she was the one that always solved the crime. Inspector Gadget was just kind of there to take the credit. And that followed through into the Nicktoons. You know, the, uh, the, the, the parents on Rugrats were always kind of stupid. They always followed that Dr. Lipschitz, who was, I think, I think that name is hilarious, but was always giving them horrible advice and they were always taking it. So yeah, that was one trope that we kind of uncovered that I never thought of as a kid, but I was like, yeah, that's true. They, they made all the adults were idiots. And that is really how, how kids feel. So I, I thought that was cool. Mm-hmm. I think also that they went, I mean, some of the tropes are tropes that have been from the be, you know beginning of filmmaking, really, right? When you think about like the Abbott Costellos, the Laurel and Hardys, there's the straight man. And then there's like kind of the physical, you know, I mean, like generally it's like a physically different looking person and also somebody that's more of a, of a slapstick but they also had a way to to flip those right is generally like with you know like Abbott and Costello um Lauren Hardy to a degree and the Three Stooges a lot of times the you know the the I would say like the the tall like the slender person was the one that was like oh seen as like oh they're the smart one they have it all figured out right um, but the reality is like, when you look at Keenan and Kel, it was the exact opposite. Now, like Keenan's character didn't have it all figured out, but he was the one that was, you know, pulling, it was kind of like reining in Kel all the time. And so I thought that that was really cool because you could go back and watch these icons, like these comedic legends, and then see where a lot of Nickelodeon stories were that, I mean, look at Drake and Josh right? Drake and Josh essentially is the same thing as Laurel and Hardy, Abbott and Costello, Keenan and Kel. Like they're all very similar and they all work. Yeah, I really like that. I, I hadn't put it all together that way, but now it's, it seems so obvious in hindsight. So that's really cool. I'm not sure that I had thought about it before this <laughs> moment either. So. Yeah, well, that's why it's good yeah. to talk about it. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. One of the first things kind of we thought of too, when we were you know, kind of diving into our, our slate. And we've looked at, I think, 14 or 15 movies now, um, was that, you know, the biggest epiphany we had was this kid agency kind of idea. Like in a lot of these, what we call Slimehouse movies that are not just Nickelodeon movies, you know, they can be kind of any movies from this era, um, was that kids drive the narrative and, you know, that they're the smartest ones in the movie. So it's cool to hear you guys say that you, you noticed that as well. Yeah, I mean, you think about the movies like, like I go back to E.T. or The Explorers or even, you know, if you want to get darker, a miniseries like It and the, the book It, right? Like the parents are either awful or the parents just don't exist, right? Like they, and, and that's really, I mean, I, I, I know that's how our childhood 
like I remember one time when Scott and I, uh, I think it was the year after seventh grade or eighth grade, Scott, I think it might've been after eighth grade. Like I went and visited and, and Scott had like, his leg was broken and we were like going and like, right. We were going to see the new mall like being set up. Right. And it wasn't, it was didn't exist there yet. It was the Woodlands mall. And I remember we took a shortcut to get through train to get on these train tracks and we heard a train starting to come and we were like, oh my God, what are we going to do? So it's like, we're like trying to run and it felt a lot like stand by me. Yeah. Right? <laughs> Another example, right. Where it's like, you just see Scott, like kind of like, you know, like just going really fast, like hobbling. And we're like, we got to go, you know? And, and that's the truth is that like, you, you don't know what you don't know whenever you're a kid and the, the rules are different. Once parents leave, everything goes out the window and there's like this different type of like little envi environment, you know, where, which is strange, you know, that's like the playground or wherever you were became the wild west. And I think that Nickelodeon and, you know, I love the idea of like the slime house, like a callback to like splatter splatterhouse or grindhouse films, or, you know, like I, I, yep. that makes total sense, total sense to, to me, you know, is that it, that's what it is. You know, like you look at blank check or, first kid or any, I mean, any of these movies, you know, it's like, it's the kid just in control. And there's always like a parent that's trying to like, you know, like take, like take them down a peg and the parents never win. Right. Ever. License to drive is a good example. Also, like I love license to drive. And uh, I mean, look at the lost boys. It's, it's mm -hmm. all the same, right? Like the rules are different and there are these like tiers. Uh, so yeah, yeah, agency is huge, and and I think that that's why we hold them so near and dear to our hearts. Yeah, one of the first movies we covered was Weird Science, yeah, um, which we actually call proto slime very lovingly, is kind of like a uh, a precursor to kind of the the golden age era, and a lot of that those kind of eighties, you know, that transition from like the popular like teen sex comedy into the more like Goonies style movie, we very lovingly call that. Uh, the proto slime era but weird science was a good we, none of us had ever seen it um, so it was a good one to kind of see oh wow they, this is like a lot of these tropes and narrative kind of um, and, patterns in their infancy almost anthony michael hall's awesome like he's so good in it and and uh and and he's good now i can't wait to see him whenever he's going to be in uh the new halloween kills next year oh so, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so um, I guess my my last question I have, and I, these guys might have more too, but um, it's interesting because there's a you. I was thinking as I was watching it about an hour in, I was thinking, what's going to be the the end? You know, what are they going to do? And I realized your ending was really well written in the sense that you describe how Nickelodeon bloomed into something much more corporate, and you had SpongeBob and Dora come along and really ballooned it into something else, and but also the um, the creator no longer being there. And so sort of her tenure ending being a natural place to go. But I'm interested because the era I grew up watching Nickelodeon was like just on the end of this quote golden age, you know, and I didn't know what era I was in or whatever, but I was watching stuff like, like Hey Arnold, which isn't covered a whole lot in the dock and the wild thornberries and rocket power and ginger and all these things and Rugrats for sure. But Rugrats was sort of like the the torchbearer for the next wave of Nickelodeon. So my question is just sort of, what do you, uh, yeah, what do you make of that sort of that next wave pre SpongeBob, pre Dora, but like that neck, that second wave and sort of that has not yet been 
covered in a documentary in any fashion. I mean, I think that era is awesome. You know, I really do. And that was one of the things that once we focused up on Geraldine Laybourne's tenure, it gave us a good starting and ending point. Um, and that was, there, were there shows afterward that we wanted to cover? Yeah, absolutely. You know, Invader Zim, that's one that I just mm. adore. I think, that's a, I think that's a fantastic show. Hey Arnold, fantastic show. Um, so it was just kind of like, we were telling essentially her story. So when she left, that's when we ended it. But I, yeah, I think that Nickelodeon continued to do amazing things. I mean, SpongeBob is a fantastic show. And yeah. that's kind of where, where we ended it. Um, but SpongeBob was created with the same passion and originality that Rugrats, Doug, and Ren and Stimpy were. It just, for whatever reason, the stars aligned, and that one became way, way, way bigger than any of its parent Nicktoons. But yeah, I mean, I think Nickelodeon did. That era is great. And, and that way, you know, when people say, oh, it's about the golden era, it's like, that's not really what we're trying to say because the golden era is different for everybody. We ran into some people that said the, what we were considering the golden era was too late. <laughs> and by, <laughs> by, 80, by 85, Nickelodeon sucked, you know? So like, wow. <laughs> so that's really what we're careful to say is we're, we're talking about whenever, you know, whenever it first became what it was to the moment it was a bona fide juggernaut. And that was with SpongeBob SquarePants. Mm -hmm. and, yeah. and and more importantly Geraldine Laybourne leaving right yeah and it's I think it's important to to note that we would have been happy to go on and do more right like it's just like you said for this we needed to we needed to find a, a definitive ending but you know the next generation even Dora the Explorer the first screenwriting class that I took, they said that the two films and or stories that you should try to really emulate when you think about it are a new hope star wars a new hope because they have all the tropes right like the wise old wizard the idealistic farm boy the princess the big bad and then door the explorer because they're very they're very clear and they know what the beginning is they know what the middle is and they know what the resolution is right and if you can't do all three of those then your story is going to be a mess right and it's very important to understand that in terms of pacing. And so you're, I mean, you're right, you know, like the wild thornberries, angry beavers, like, I mean, mm -hmm. you could just go down the list and, and anybody that if they were to come up to that generation or the, you know, or the, the generation now that's watching Nickelodeon, anybody that were, if they were to say, I think that this is the best, they would potent, I mean, they would be right. One, because it's their opinion, two, because it's all amazing. All of it is, right? This isn't like the Star Wars, you know, the nine films where we probably all could sit down and go, okay, well, maybe that one was a miss, was a miss. We can agree on that one, right? But so, so uh, yeah, I think that there's room to explore that. And, you know, uh, fingers crossed, if we, if the stars were to align, we would, we would explore it in the future also, because those stories need to be told. Awesome. Very cool. <laughs> I think that's a great note to end on. Feels good to me. Yeah. It was good to me. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, thanks so much guys. This was awesome. Yeah. yeah thank you guys very much. This, this is great. Cool. Yeah. Sounds good. Yeah. All right. We'll talk to y'all soon. Y'all have a great thank Friday. You. Bye guys. Bye. 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 Bye.